welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Mother Jones Radio, Fire on the Prairie, the BBC, Ring of Fire, and the Young Turks. Even before the November elections, people were talking about the emergence of a new kind of Democrat, or, as the New York Times put it last fall, Republican bastions in the western states are losing ground to a new Democratic brand of libertarian-tinged prairie populism. That article profiled my guest, Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer. Governor, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on. We're spending most of our time on politics. First, can I get a feel for our listeners, most of whom live in urban areas, what it's like to live in Montana, just because I know it's going to be so different. I looked at the population of New York gives people 26,000 in one square mile of people. And if you go to Montana in the whole state, there are 6.9 people per square mile. You have a whole different life out there. Well, if you if you compare the, the map of Montana to the northeast, just take the whole map of Montana and then place it on the northeast and run from New York City to Indianapolis, and we have 920,000 people. Montana is just uh, one small town with a very long Main Street. Uh, we, uh, we have large distances to contend with. The largest city in Montana is Billings with 100,000 people. The capital, where I live, is 35,000 people. Uh, Montana is a remarkable place. Thirty uh, percent of our land is uh, federal land. We have some of the last remaining wildlands left in the lower 48. We are the headwaters for the entire country. Seventy percent of the water in the largest river system in the Missouri comes from the mountains of Montana. Fifty percent of the water is stored in the Columbia River Basin in Montana. And uh, we're the only place uh, in the United States where water actually flows to the Atlantic, the Pacific, and to the Arctic Ocean. We have a spot where you could stand in one place and pour a cup of water, and and a portion of it would go to all three of those drainages. We cherish uh, our open lands. We cherish those uh, places where uh, you still don't see evidence of humankind ever having been there. No roads have been built, and uh, it's still occupied by the original species that were there. And we understand that we have a special responsibility to the whole world to protect these assets uh, that we have, not only the water and the land, but also the, uh, the species of animals and plants who, who live and occupy on those spaces. Now, it sounds to me like you're verging into what we'd hear from your average environmentalist who's identified with being a liberal, which is always identified with being a Democrat. So tell me about this this brand of, of Democratic person that, that grows up in Montana. What, now, what's different there? Cowgirl, we just met each other on the, on, the, on the phone here on this interview, and here you're already calling me names. You know, in Montana, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call what I, what I just uh, described, uh, I wouldn't call somebody who says those things an environmentalist. Well, heck, environmentalists are wild-eyed and, and, and crazy, and they live on the coast. Those things I just described, uh, that would be a regular Montanan who likes to hunt and camp and fish and protect the places where we do it. Do you think that, that definition would sell elsewhere in the country, though? I mean, you are being painted, you and by, when I say you, I mean both you as a governor and Montana as this independent, unusual, unique voice. Well, we are. Um, we don't like people telling us what to think and how to say it. Uh, we, we don't like uh, the federal government or anybody else to come in here and tell us what's right and wrong. We, we kind of have our own notions. We have our own way of saying it. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm just going to be honest with you in the heartland, quote, environmentalists, have been painted with a broad stroke of people who are obstructionist. Well, that's not necessarily true. In fact, in most cases, it's not true. But the Republican message has been that. Uh, 
that environmentalists will take away your child and your job and your house. Well, you know, but then when you describe yourself as a person who likes to hunt, camp, and fish, and you like clean water and you like open spaces and you don't want to build any more roads in the wilderness, um, if you're a person who says, oh, gosh, I wouldn't want any more mercury to end up in our water so I can't eat the fish, no, and I wouldn't care to have any sulfur, and I don't need to see any smokestacks. The fact is, I don't even want to see anything on the horizon. Now, that sounds like an environmentalist on the east or west coast, but in Montana, that sounds like a guy who likes to go hunting and fishing. Why do you think that the Democratic Party is starting to take a turn where a person like you is now even being, you know, foisted as a possible Democratic presidential candidate? Oh, I think there's a lot of kooky people who live on the east and west coast start making up those notions. Um, you know, uh, people are going to be a little different in the Rocky Mountain West and the Midwest than they are in the big cities. Um, and the people they elect are going to be a little bit more like them than they are people on the East and West Coast. Now, so far, that just seems completely logical, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're likely to look a little bit more like the folks in the Rocky Mountain West. I'm more likely to talk like the folks here. I'm more likely to drive a pickup and go to church on Sunday. I'm very likely to be able to balance my checkbook and take responsibility for my own actions. And um, I'm going to believe in the future enough to invest in education. Now, uh, I just described regular people in Montana, which uh, most of them have been voting for Republicans for a lot of years. And they voted but, for you. Why? Um, well, actually, because those are Montana values, and it turns out, think about what I just said. Heck, those are values of people who likely are Democrats living on the East and West Coast. It's just the way I framed it. We balance checkbooks, right? We're good with money. Republicans in Washington, D.C., what have they done? They have spent money like drunken sailors, and that's no disrespect to either group, because I have friends who are both drunks and sailors, some are both. But these folks have not been good with money. They have taxed our children and grandchildren, uh, not themselves, so that they could move money from the taxpayer to the public trough so that corporate America could drink from it. This guy with a gift of gab I'm talking to is Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer. Well, you know, after the elections, we started to hear, Governor, that we were seeing a change in the Democratic Party. It's the first time we started hearing about blue dog Democrats versus urban Democrats versus rural Democrats. Do you think there really is a sustained change going on here that's going to make a difference in how the Democrats conduct themselves in Washington, D.C. and for the entire U.S.? Well, I think you have to make sure that you have a tent big enough that, um, that people are invited in. You can't start uh, putting walls on your tent and telling people they have to stay out. Uh, we, we are a, a party that uh, has traditionally supported working families. We are a party who has traditionally supported a good education system, safe communities, good health care system. Well, uh, a whole lot of Republicans claim that they support those things, but when they're given the opportunity, they don't vote for them and they don't support them when, they, when they're elected to office. So those of us who do support those concepts and do put our money where our mouth is in terms of uh, public money, those of us who don't forget uh, what our promises were when we're running for office, we're probably going to get reelected. And then people say, oh, isn't that some kind of a miracle? A Democrat uh, got reelected in Montana, and uh, there's a bunch of Republicans up there. Well, I told them what I was going to do, and I'm doing it. It's the same thing that... Um, that I have been telling these folks in Washington, D.C. for some time. The most important issue in America is our ability to produce our own domestic energy. We could produce hundreds of thousands of jobs 
building a cleaner, more abundant energy supply. And we wouldn't have to send the next generation to uh, the Middle East or North Africa or God knows where to support some dictator in his venture to pump oil and ship it to us. If we move now, we can create our own energy system and, and not increase carbon dioxide, produce a lot of jobs in the heartland. And Washington, D.C. apparently doesn't understand that that is the most important issue. It'll affect jobs. It'll, it'll affect the rural economy. It'll be cleaner for the environment. And God knows that in every community, we have been sending young people to die in a place called Iraq. You know, I have to let you go, and I hate that I have to do that, but I, I do want to give you one shot here that I've never given anyone else. This, this is uh, one of the last shows of Mother Jones Radio. And you could be the first presidential candidate to declare here on Mother Jones Radio. So I wanted to leave that open for you. Well, I am going to declare. You are. I am going to declare. It's damn good to live in Montana, and I hope everybody enjoys the holidays. And I do declare. It is very good of you to take the time. Thank you so much. Brian Schweitzer is the Democratic governor of Montana. Yes, didn't they know? Heather Rogers is a journalist and filmmaker. In her new book, Gone Tomorrow, The Hidden Life of Garbage, Rogers follows trash on its journey from garbage can to landfill. She asks why Americans throw away so much stuff and examines issues of sustainability. Aaron Sarver recently sat down with Rogers in the offices of In These Times. First, you'll hear an excerpt from a talk Rogers gave in Chicago. I kind of like to start with some statistics that I think are kind of jarring in terms of where we are with garbage today. So every day each American throws out four and a half pounds of garbage. So that's 1,600 pounds of garbage each year. 80% of all U.S. products are used once and then thrown away. Only 5% of all plastic gets recycled. The middle of the Pacific Ocean is now six times more abundant with plastic waste than zooplankton. To sort of frame it in terms of how the U.S. wastes in comparison to other countries, the U.S. is 4 or 5% of global population, but it produces 30% of the planet's wastes, and it consumes 30% of the planet's resources. So it's incredibly disproportionate, the amount of waste that we produce. So what happens at the end of World War II is, at the end of the 1950s, is markets get saturated. Germany's recovering, Japan's recovering, most Americans have bought a car, a house, all the appliances they need. And industry, U.S. industries start to, they start to realize that they're going to have a crisis on their hands because they have such tremendously productive assembly lines, 
but the real concern is how do you keep consumption, how do you get consumption to keep pace with production? That's the real problem, that's the real trick. And they came up with the idea of built-in obsolescence. If you want to understand modern garbage today, you have to understand built-in obsolescence. It was part of a historical moment, and it doesn't exist in the same way today as it did then, but it very much informs the way that manufacturers conceive of, of production today. And built-in obsolescence is simply the manufacturing commodities to wear out faster than they need to, whether it's through fashion obsolescence, technological obsolescence, or a combination of the two. At the time in the 50s, in the late 50s, it was often referred to as forced consumption. And there was a real consciousness that what manufacturers needed to do was to get people to throw more things away. At a plastics conference at the end of the 1950s, a plastics executive announced from the podium to the audience, your future is in the garbage wagon. So they knew that that's what they needed to do. And I tell this story in the book, and, and I'm, I'm pointing it out now, because it's really important to understand that this is the way that the economic system that we live in works. This is its logic, is that it needs us to throw things away, to keep consumption going. So you have the rise of built-in obsolescence, increasing durable goods are made to wear out faster than they need to. There's new categories of, of commodities manufactured to be disposable from the get-go, you know, to be used a few times and then break or be thrown away, and they're so cheap they can be replaced. And, and also you have the rise of, of increased use of packaging, of product packaging. And packaging is a commodity that's barely perceptible as a commodity. I think a lot of people, when they throw packaging either in the recycling bin or in the garbage can, they think about, you know, it's, it could be distressing, but somehow we've, we've made a separate space for that substance in our thinking. It's like kind of acceptable in a weird way that it exists, but really packaging is just garbage waiting to happen. You go into a grocery store and all of the packaging you see on the shelves, it's going in the garbage can or it's going in the recycling bin pretty quickly after it's purchased. I'm going to just talk quickly about solutions. Among the most important things that, that we can do is start educating ourselves about the role of production and creating the amount of waste that we have. Why is it that if you're not at home and you want a drink of water, you have to buy it in a plastic bottle? You know, why is it that when your DVD player breaks, it's cheaper to buy a new one than it is to fix it. The other thing that I, I really think needs to happen is that we need to talk about environmental crisis in terms of race and class. And those things need to be integrated into the discussion of the environment. And the mainstream environmental movement has tried really hard over the last 30 years to keep environmental issues separate from economic issues. And they're integrally linked. They can't be separated. It's a complete missed opportunity and it's irresponsible to act like they're not. And there are some examples that in terms of reform and the role that regulation can play, you know, I talk a lot in the book about the role of the state. I think the state needs to come in and regulate industry. But that first requires a democratization of the state because the state has been very active on behalf of industry at every step of the way and they continue to be in the most recent energy bill that was passed. There are huge subsidies for oil and gas exploration. Meanwhile, there's no R&D being, no, no meaningful R&D being done on waste reduction, reuse, composting technologies, even recycling technologies. 
in Germany, in 1991, there was a law passed called the Packaging Ordinance, and a, a provision of that law says that 72% of all beverages must be sold in refillable containers. And it's, it's just, you know, basically the system that we used to have here. It cuts down on hundreds of thousands of tons of garbage every year. It saves huge amounts of energy. It creates jobs. And 69% of all Germans prefer to take their empties back to the store. There are things like that. Also, the EU has just recently adopted a measure that says that there can't be lead in computers and monitors, uh, in televisions and computer, computer monitors anymore. The manufacturers can't use lead. They also control the, the use of mercury and switches. That's designing out a tremendous amount of toxicity. There's four to eight pounds of lead in, in every monitor and television set which are typically thrown into landfills and then contaminate groundwater and soil. Those are both examples of going into the realm of production and saying you can't make these things. You can't make package needless packaging. You can't make toxic waste. You should learn when to go. You should learn how to Change Conference, set up as a result of the G8 discussions at Glen Eagles, has ended in Mexico. There's been broad agreement on the science, but less harmony on the policies that should be pursued internationally. Our environment analyst, Roger Harabin, is at the conference in Monterey, and he spoke to the head of the American delegation at the talks, Paula Dobriansky. We believe that we do need to take action now. In fact, our policies are pegged on taking action now in the medium term and the long term. Uh, Claude Mandiel of the IEA gave a presentation and one of the premises of his presentation was especially focused on the importance of energy efficiency. We embrace that, we think that's important, and in fact many steps that we have taken domestically and we also seek to um, uh, undertake with other partners internationally relate to buildings and appliances. Your economy is growing in a way that is less energy inefficient than it was, but your total emissions are still growing. And what you've heard at this conference is that the United States needs to lead the world by cutting emissions. And you refer to your energy efficiency initiative. You had to be sued to do that by New York State because you weren't imposing the regulations that the Senate had asked you to impose. Well, first on energy efficiency measures, in fact, it is the case that absolute emissions are and have increased in recent time. Um, 
in terms of a metric we use in looking at greenhouse gas emissions and also the rate of economic growth, we have been not only keeping to our targets but exceeding our targets. The president of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, John Holdren, told the BBC recently that he believed that we may already have entered a period of dangerous climate change. He's immensely frustrated with your administration for not leading the world in cutting emissions. Well, we believe that we are leaders in this. We have but devoted but in what over, way are you leading? We have devoted over the last five years some $20 billion to climate change activities. That exceeds the investment made by any country. Head of the U.S. delegation to climate change talks in Mexico, Paula Dobriansky. Sir David King is the British government's chief scientific advisor. James Nocte asked him what he thinks has been achieved. We have 18 countries, the leading uh, economic countries in the world, uh, meeting to discuss the issues around climate change. And I have to say the conclusion amongst all of the countries is that the basic science is no longer disputed. The science of climate change is accepted by all the nations that were present. We received a detailed economic presentation of uh, the economics of climate change mitigation and adaptation from Sir Nicholas Stern. And uh, I think that went down exceptionally well. I didn't hear any, uh, uh, not, not one comment of skepticism about his report. But of course, even if, as you say, the science is generally accepted now in a way that maybe wasn't true a few years ago, is there any progress on coming to some agreement between the United States and the other leading nations about what the best way forward is? What became very clear at this meeting was that uh, Britain is playing a remarkable leadership role and I'm, I'm not saying that simply because I'm British and I was there but the other nations, all, all of the nations were looking to Britain for leadership uh, so the Glen Eagles dialogue is going to be continued um, so that, that the, the G8 process that was begun last year will continue in Germany next year and the general discussion indicated not only that 18 nations are keen to deal with this problem but that we have a massive problem to manage now it is true that we didn't reach a consensual agreement um, and many of us would like to see the United States playing a leadership role um, and not uh, if you like tagging along with the rest of the nations well the truth is can you do what you believe needs to be done without the United States changing its position? I think it's absolutely critical that we take all of those countries that were there with us in this process, including the United States. So, uh, yes, I, we, we can't manage this process without taking the, the world's most powerful nation and the world's biggest carbon dioxide emitter with us. Britain's chief scientific advisor, Sir David King, speaking on Radio 4. What a beautiful place I have found in this place That is circling all around the sun What a beautiful dream that could flash on the screen In a blink of an eye and be gone from me Soft and sweet, let me hold it close and keep it here with me And one day we will die and our ashes will fly from the air 
So what made you want to write a book about garbage? Garbage collection is one of those systems in a city's infrastructure that makes the city work. And, it, and it's one of those things that's, that's sort of invisible and it seems like it just happens and everything's okay. But, but you know, I think everyone when they throw something away, they think, they ask themselves, where does this ultimately go? And, and is the system that we have a good one? And is it sustainable? So I just wanted to know where it went. And it's this, this substance through which we can make these connections between larger environmental crisis and our daily lives, which is often really hard to do because those larger crises are really abstract. We hear about global warming, even the hole in the ozone layer, which is totally concrete. It's still really kind of an abstraction for most people. You traveled to a lot of waste facilities and landfills while researching the book. What was it like to see these facilities up close? It was really disturbing to see these, these places. I, I went to an incinerator in Newark, New Jersey, and it had a room which to me looked like a coliseum. That's how I write about it in the book. Full of household garbage bags. Just your kitchen plastic bags. I mean, the individual contents of each bag become completely inconsequential. It's like a sea of garbage. And it's apocalyptic. It's like a couple days worth of garbage for this one facility. And after I went to these places, I had nightmares, which I was a little surprised about. But it's pretty awesome, in an amoral sense of the word, to see how many resources and how much ingenuity goes into annihilating discarded commodities in this culture. There are hundreds of amazing statistics in the book. In the book you write, quote, WMI's two Morrisville landfills leach on average 100,000 gallons daily, end quote. This wastewater has to be treated, and so once our waste reaches landfills, we're not really done dealing with it. What are some of the long-term problems with storing our waste in, in these mega landfills? Landfills are now, you know, this, this high-tech system that's supposed to protect the environment actually doesn't protect the environment. It's unknown how much of the, the landfill gas that they actually can capture. And when this gas escapes, half of landfill gas is comprised 50% roughly of methane. And methane is 21 times more heat trapping than carbon dioxide. So it's a significant global warming threat. Then you've got the leachate, which is, and, and the other toxins which are brewing inside the landfill, being, you know, being held in just by this plastic liner, which the EPA has now come out and said will not hold. These liners will fail in you know, much shorter spans of time than initially predicted. And, and they were only expected to last somewhere between 30 and 50 years anyway. And now the EPA is saying they're not even going to last that long. So we've got these you know, massive landfills all over the country, which are environmental time bombs. And it's, it's a complete disaster. In a free market economy, can we really expect industry to adopt sustainable manufacturing processes? No. No, we can't. In a free market economy, it's important to look at it in an amoral way, like to just step back and say, okay, how does this system work? And the way that it works is that it must have unfettered access to natural resources and also to labor. But if it doesn't have unfettered access to natural resources, 
it can't compete. You know, now we have, there's this rise of green capitalism. What green capitalism says, and I think there are aspects of it that are positive and, and very agreeable, which is that we need to be able to reuse the commodities that we make and sell over and over again. Ideally, we need to be able to reuse packaging over and over again. And they say we need to redesign the production process. I think all of that is, is right, right on track. But they say that all these things can happen voluntarily. And that when companies become aware of the damage they're doing, you know, eventually they'll start making the right choice. In my assessment, what happens when companies do this is one of two things, because you don't have a level playing field. If you've got a company and you've decided to go green, it's going to cost more. And what that means is that you're going to be competing with companies that aren't doing that and aren't incurring the greater costs. So, so that's going to drive you in one of two directions. It's either going to drive you out of business or it's going to drive you into the, the, the realm of manufacturing luxury items to sell to you know, people who have now embraced, I mean, there's this whole new level of luxury consumption that's connected to organic living, organic lifestyles. You can get an organic cotton sheets and, and sustainable furniture, and, and those things cost more. I mean, those aren't goods that are available to working class families or people that, that live in public housing. I mean, th those are very high-end consumer items. So that kind of change is not going to affect a greater change across the board. Jim Kenny, an actor who plays the lead in a new independent film that is receiving rave reviews across the country. It's called Sweetland, and it's directed by Ali Salim. Tim, thanks so much for joining us in Ring of Fire. Oh, thank you so much, Bobby. It's a thrill and an honor. And, and before we start, I have to thank you for all the great work you've done. I live in the uh, Hudson Valley, and uh, you've done such extraordinary work with trying to keep the Hudson River clean. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much. That's Riverkeeper's fault and not mine. But thanks for joining us in Ring of Fire. We wanted to have you on because your film is one of several recent films that have been carbon neutral. And yeah. uh, among those are An Inconvenient Truth, which makes a lot of sense, Al Gore's documentary, which is the first carbon neutral documentary film, but also The Day After Tomorrow, which was the global warming film, and, and George Clooney's film, Syriana. But um, what does it mean? Well, carbon neutral essentially means that we assessed how much pollution we were going to make in creating the film. We worked with a company in London called the Carbon Neutral Company, 
they assessed how much pollution we were going to make and suggested ways that we could create less pollution. And then at the end, we tallied up uh, how much pollution we'd actually created and found ways to offset that pollution, in our case, by helping do some reforestation projects in Germany and building windmills and buying compact fluorescent light bulbs for Jamaica. But, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of this movie for doing it because this is a little tiny independent, and I think it sort of says to, you know, other movies, there's really no excuse. If a little tiny movie with no real budget can do this, so can you. And then what aspects of your production did you audit? Everything. You look at how much uh, film you're using, how much film you're processing, what the weight of the film that you're sending back and forth on airplanes, how many times you're flying actors back and forth, how much driving you have to do to get to and from set, how much electricity you're using in powering your lights. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork in documenting that stuff, but all of that is taken into account. It's, it's wonderful of Ali Salim to do this because, you know, I don't think anybody opens the newspaper and says, gosh, I'd like to go to a movie. Uh, I hope there's something carbon neutral playing. You know, it's not, it's not a great marketing tool. And, you know, our first responsibility was to make a good movie. And, and thankfully, I think Sweetland is just an absolutely glorious movie that I hope people well, will go it's see. Been getting, it's been getting wonderful, wonderful reviews. It's about a mail-order bride set in the 1920s. Right. And it's about a mail-order bride from Germany, and the local preacher won't marry them because she's German. Well, in, in point of fact, uh, the law in the United States at, at that time was that even though the First World War was over, it was illegal to marry a German at the time. Um, and this creates quite a problem because I'm a, in a strict Lutheran community. I'm, I can't marry her, but she can't live in my house if we're unmarried. And it's, a, I, I just think, a gorgeous movie. It's a kind of slow-burning romance between these two people. And it, there are kind of great themes of our desire for home and our desire for community and the kind of yearning we have to be close to the land and to somehow meaningfully be grateful for everything our ancestors did that allows us to be alive today. But also, there are these great contemporary issues of farmland preservation, of, of who the church and the state should allow us to marry and not marry? Do they have the right to do that? I, I think immigration is a very contemporary issue that runs all the way through this thing. Well, Tim, thank you so much for making a wonderful film, and thanks for imposing these ethical standards that have been a benefit to all of us, and a great example. We arrived late to the wake, stole the urn while they looked away, and drove to the beach because I knew you'd want it that way. And you were standing on the hood of the car Singing out loud when the sun came up And I know I wasn't right But it felt so good And your mother didn't mind Like I thought she would And that Aryan song was playing in my mind and three and a half minutes like a lifetime. Uh, none other than uh, 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 Jim Inhofe, friend of the show. Uh, 
Republican Senator of Oklahoma. He is the outgoing chairman, thank God, of the Environment and Public Works Committee in the Senate. He will give up that job. He's the one that that put up uh, pictures of, like, aborted fetuses and stuff? That's his colleague from Oklahoma, Tom Coburn, who did that. Tom Coburn is the smart thoughtful senator from Oklahoma. Uh, Tom uh, Tom Coburn would run circles around Jim Inhofe. Tom well, Coburn, my favorite senator. From Oklahoma, actually. In the entire country, according to my profile on theyoungturks.com. Oh, is that right? Yes. Uh, so Jim Inhofe is the guy who said that after the Abu Ghraib photos came out that he was outraged by the outrage. Uh, not by the uh, treatment at all. He also has at one point uh, talked. What did he call global warming, Cenk? Do you have that? Uh, do you have a hoax? Your, a hoax uh, on the tip of your tongue. He, he did. He had some great nonsense about global warming. Well, anyway, he uh, is holding his final hearing today uh, as chairman. His final full committee hearing, uh, and and he's holding it on climate change and the media. Yeah. The hearing will look at how the media has presented scientific evidence regarding predictions of human-caused catastrophic global warming, the senator's office said. Quote, Senator Inhofe believes that poorly conceived policy decisions will result from the media's nonstop hyping of extreme scenarios and dire climate predictions, said communications director Mark Morano, who is not interested in the truth. This hearing will serve to advance the interests of sound science and encourage rational policy decisions. Among those scheduled to testify, geologist David Deming of the University of Oklahoma, paleoclimate researcher Bob Carter of uh, some place in Colorado, and then some other hearing at uh, 9.30 a.m. today. You can watch it live on the Internet uh, through uh, Senate.gov. I urge you to because um, he's insane uh, and doesn't believe in global warming and has decided to go out with a bang and blame the media. Yeah, of course. Well, when in doubt, uh, always bring the people that are bringing you facts. If they're bringing you facts, they must, they're not helping your propaganda. So, of course, you attack the scientists, the professors, the journalists, the conservatives always do because they're the people bringing you information. Now, Representative Joe Barton in the House, he's a Republican of Texas, doing likewise in the House. And he says he said yesterday that he intends to block Democrats from passing a mandatory federal cap on heat-trapping greenhouse gas emissions. So they want to... You want to stop the greenhouse gas emissions? Joe Barton's going to fight you all the way. In fact, quote, he says, I will be an active part of any leadership effort to prevent it from passing in the House. And here's part of the story I love. The outgoing chairman of the powerful Energy and Commerce Committee told reporters after speaking an event hosted by the American Petroleum Institute and the Energy Department. (laughs) I would have never guessed. Huh. So you go and give a speech to the American Petroleum Institute, they give you money, and then you try to block the Democrats' effort in controlling greenhouse gas emissions. Hmm. But I'm sure the two things are totally unrelated. I'm sure Joe Barton, nothing to do. In fact, Joe Barton... When is something like this going to become illegal for our politicians to do? Well, mm. never. <laughs> that's That's tough. But... Uh, we'll get back to the solution in a second. Uh, Barton says that his actions are justified, though, because it's nothing to do with the money he might be making from the American Petroleum Institute, because global warming science is, quote, pretty weak stuff. Oh, I love Joe Barton. (laughs) Barton added, but uh, for us to try to step in and say we've got to do all these uh, global things to prevent the Earth from getting any warmer, in my opinion, is absolute nonsense. It's not going to happen. I love a member of Congress who uses the phrase, do all these global things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, stop. You're you're hurting me with your intellect, Joe. Uh, So, uh, well, this is good. Let's talk a little more about Jim Inhofe then as we continue to go back and forth among these clowns. First of all, let me hit you with uh, 
Well, I tell you what, we're going to continue with the environment on Jim Inhofe and then remind me to come back home to Israel. Sure. Top it off, just to give you an idea of guys who were going out the door here. Um, uh, regarding the environment, uh, Jenk, you're of course completely correct uh, that uh, 2003, in a speech to the Senate, he had he said he had offered compelling evidence that catastrophic global warming is a hoax. Uh, this must be like uh, Colin Powell's secret evidence of the weapons of mass destruction, uh, because we haven't heard it yet. Uh, he also, what I like is uh, uh, that uh, he says that the uh, he's a strong critic of the scientific consensus that climate change is occurring as a result of human activities, because. He would know better than a scientific uh, uh, consensus. He cited his support. You know what all the scientists in the world like to get to do, together and do? Come up with hoaxes. They think, well, you know what? We've got 928 scientific studies here. Let's have a little fun. Why don't you doctor your evidence, and I'll doctor mine, and we'll all doctor it when it's actually pretty weak stuff. Yeah. And we'll create this large, giant hoax to put all of science credibility in doubt. Yeah, that's probably what happened. If there's any sort of group or community that you should doubt, I think it would be this, the scientific community because people depend on them so much for their facts. And they're so rarely doubted. So if any hoax were to really get through, it would get through with the scientific community because nobody would be expecting it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's like um, uh, the neocon Douglas Feist memo after 9-11. And I swear to God this is true. Yeah, and I can show true. you the Newsweek link uh, where he told uh, he suggested to the White House that we attack Argentina, Brazil and Paraguay after 9-11. When asked why, he said they'll never see it coming. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. He was the number three person at the Pentagon after Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz. So he says that the global warming is a hoax. That conclusion is supported by the painstaking work of the nation's top client as a climate scientist. Uh, of course, the climate scientist uh, said the exact opposite. Uh, uh, he, uh, in his speech, Inhofe also claimed that, quote, satellite data confirmed by NOAA balloon measurements confirms that no meaningful warming has occurred over the last century. And then, uh, again, I'm reading from Wikipedia, but this is, of course, these are exact quotes. But And then it says, however, the satellite temperature record corroborates the well-documented warning, uh, warming trend noted in surface temperature measurements. And also, the satellite record begins in 1979, uh, so it's completely unclear what he meant by last century for something that had been going on at the time for uh, about uh, uh, 20 years. He also compared uh, environmentalists to Nazis. Of course. Uh, it reminds me, he said, of the Third Reich. And then he says, oddly, you say something over and over and over again, and people will believe it. That's the environmentalist strategy. No, that's the Bush administration strategy. Right, and the difference between the scientists and the Bush administration is the Bush administration just makes up words and repeats them over and over, like cut and run, when in fact Don Rumsfeld is writing a memo that has the same exact strategy as Mirtha, uh, whereas the scientists repeat something over and over. When it's true, they put it into these things called studies Journal and study. research projects. And, you know, the maddening thing... You know, it's like, it's like the, him saying, you know, <laughs> these mathematicians, they keep saying over and over that 2 plus 2 equals 4. <laughs> I guess if you keep saying it... People start to think that 2 plus 2 actually equals 4. It is so maddening that that when the propaganda is being spun by his side, when they say, there's a debate about global warming, some people say, yes, the scientific community is split, when in fact that's the lie, and then he turns around and acts like the side that says there's a consensus is lying. 
It is it is particularly uh, maddening, and that's what he uh, completely does. He's compared environmentalists to Nazis and the EPA to the Gestapo. Uh, and again, they're oh, just- by the way, Tom Delay has also said the same thing about the EPA, comparing them to Nazis. But if you know, if Dick Durbin makes a speech where he says, "Oh, look, what's happening in Guantanamo Bay reminds me of the gulags." Uh, then everybody goes ballistic. Dick Durbin has to cry and give an apology. Anytime any Democrat even vaguely mentions Germany, they have to apologize. But, you know, the Inhofs and the delays of the world can call environmentalists, scientists, the EPA, Nazis, and Gestapo left and right. Nobody ever forces an apology. They never uh, have to back down from anything they say. Now, the thing about Inhofe is, is that I think he's basing his opinions on the fact that he's crazy, not that he is necessarily, like, in the pocket of the Petroleum Institute. Uh, I think he's actually an unstable person. One thing I'm reading <laughs> reading here is that— uh, I, I, I love the debate about yeah. whether he's in the pocket of the American Petroleum Institute or whether he's actually off his rocker. Well, according to this, he was against the wishes of the Bush administration, the Pentagon, and the American Petroleum Institute. He has persistently blocked ratification of the International Convention on the Law of the Sea because it would infringe on American sovereignty. So I, 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 he's just insane, I think. Now, uh, and that also saw this environmental stuff. I think he probably believes it. And I think he thinks the environmentalists, again, want us to enter into these global treaties and it'll infringe on sovereignty. So I've got to stop this global warming debate. Now let's wrap this up in the proof that he's insane uh, 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 with uh, uh, Israel. First of all, made a speech in the Senate in which he suggested that the 9-11 tax were a form of divine retribution against the U.S. for failing to defend Israel. One of the reasons really? I, I, be- I never heard that. One of the reasons I believe the spiritual door was open for an attack against the U.S. is that the policy of our government has been to ask the Israelis and demand it with pressure not to retaliate in a significant way against the terrorist strikes that have been launched against them. That's that's crazy that's talk. Insane. That's crazy talk. And, and that's if, crazier than George Bush. If a Democrat said something like that in you know with their own policies, uh, th- you know I suspect they'd lose. In re-election, it would be used. Uh, uh, look, I gotta wonder the sanity of the people of Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if the, the people running against them are putting effective campaigns. I do campaign commercials on that stuff over and over and over. Jim Inhofe says we had it coming on nine eleven. If you agree with him, you vote for him. I don't know what kind of campaigns they're running, but if they're running a competent campaign and the good people of Oklahoma know this and are re-electing Jim Inhofe, then they're just as loathsome and and incompetent as he is. I try to be careful when I use Wikipedia as a source because anybody can edit it and it's nonsense. But when it's a direct quote they have proven to be and it's got some attribution to it uh you can generally you just go to the source you just they, go to the, that's true right but anyway, so here's the speech of the senate floor right uh i believe very strongly that we ought to support israel that it has a right to the land this is senator jim Inhofe from oklahoma holding a hearing today that uh, global warming is a media hoax uh that it has a right to the land this is the most important reason because god said so oh yeah there you go. There you go. as i said a minute ago look it up in the book of genesis <laughs> no it's right there uh, on the desk, he says. In Genesis 13. He's quoting Genesis as fact? In Genesis chapter 13, or book 13, chapters 14 through 17, the Bible says, The Lord said to Abram, Lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. Rumsfeld. Totally like Rumsfeld. Uh, for all the land which you see, uh, to you I will give it and your seed forever. Right, so then he quotes this. Arise, I walk through the land. I uh, my semen got involved in this story. Nice, yeah. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and the breadth of it, for uh, I will give it to, to thee. And then he comes back to him talking and goes, that's God talking. The Bible says that Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of uh, Marm. Marm, is that right? And we're talking about Abraham, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, Abraham, right? It says Abram, but that's like, uh-huh. I guess that's, a, uh, as you see, I'm not 
what you'd call versed in the Bible, uh, uh, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar before the Lord. Hebron is in the West Bank. It is at this place where God approached, appeared to Abraham and said, I'm giving you this land, the West Bank. This is not a political battle at all. It is a contest over whether or not the word of God is true. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what's interesting, uh, why we actually had 9-11? Because there are people on the other side of the world who believe the word of God indicates that they should have all the land. And that's why they decided to bomb us. But, you know, but Jim Inhofe thinks the best way to battle those guys is to say, aha, no, my God says that I should have all the land and that the Israelis should have this land. So why don't we have a God off and and we'll just keep uh, fighting wars because apparently God loves blood. And loves wars, so he's assigned. He's done a cute little trick where he's assigned the same land to all the uh, different people, and then made them fight wars over. That was a cute trick on God's part. Here's another. Luckily, by the way, God didn't give a. Sorry. (laughs) Luckily, God didn't give a damn about China, so we don't have to go fight over there. So the Israelis don't have to have it. The Palestinians, we don't have to have it. The Christians don't have to have it. God didn't even realize China was on the planet, so he didn't talk about it in the Bible or the Quran. Or in the Old Testament, so it's almost as if the people alive then who wrote the Bible didn't know it existed. Oh no, that couldn't be. God is forever. He knows. He knew about China. He just didn't care about it. Right. Just didn't think to. Uh, didn't think to mention it. Here's another. God reason. doesn't like the Chinese. Here's another reason why 9/11 might have happened. And, and again, or, or a contributing factor, uh, is that um, the people that Jim Inhofe supports. Uh, are so uh, full of themselves and are so guilty of of hubris and that the leader of the people who Inhofe supports believes that God chose him to be president, that when he got a memo that said bin Laden to turn into attack inside the United States, he didn't do anything. That's, that's, one, that's one reason that I think maybe ought to factor into Jim Inhofe's next Senate speech. Thanks for listening, everybody. Just wanted to give you a bit of an update today on my uh, west to east adventure. Uh, about a week ago, I did successfully leave my parents' house in the deep south and clawed my way up here to Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I am and will be for a little while. Uh, but I would actually like to rewind quite a ways and... Uh, and take a look at the actual logistics of how I got here, um, because it's actually relevant to people who aren't me. So, um, several months ago, you might remember that I mentioned, for some reason that made sense at the time, uh, that I drive uh, drove a Prius at the time, you know, a ridiculously extravagant car for what I needed, purchased out of liberal guilt, uh, etc., um, which, of course, didn't really jive with the whole idea of quitting my job, packing up, moving across the country, planning on not being employed for a month or two, um, you know, having an expensive car and expensive um, insurance payment wasn't going to work out too well. So about the same time, I um, started looking into a pretty serious downgrade and it was about that time that I asked you guys if if anybody knew anything about biodiesel. Because I thought, you know, finally I'll make a, a rational decision about 
a, a car purchase, you know, something in my price range, but what can I do to kind of still feel good about it? And, and biodiesel was something I hadn't looked into too much. And I just thought, you know, it'll be painful, but I might just end up driving an old Mercedes with, you know, the old turbo diesel engine and it'll be kind of goofy, but it'll be kind of cool. And, uh, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. But after getting some responses from you guys and, and lots of help and, you know, direction on, uh, resources online to, to do some research, I actually found out that Volkswagen makes diesel engine cars as well. Um, not just old ones, but, you know, current and, 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 you know, definitely decent, uh, used ones as well. So it turns out that's what I ended up doing. In fact, if you're, um, if you're listening to the show on the enhanced version on your iPod or on iTunes, you can actually see the picture of, of my new car, um, right on, you know, in little picture square. And so I just wanted to take a minute or so to uh, to tell you some of the things that I didn't know until I started looking into it that has got me so excited about this whole prospect. And for all of you people looking for a plenty decent car under $10,000, um, you know, but like you kind of wish you could buy a, a hybrid or something like that and save some gas or whatever, um, but you simply can't afford it, I think this is a fantastic alternative and I'm, I'm thrilled with, with the outcome so far, but the biggest thing that I had, I had no idea about before, um, before getting this or before researching these cars is that these diesel engine cars get about the same gas mileage as the hybrid I was driving. I drove, uh, um, this car from left Baton Rouge uh, headed for Nashville and drove about 550 miles before stopping for gas and put in like 11 gallons. It was ridiculous. So, um, 11 gallons of diesel, which is slightly more expensive, but, uh, but, but definitely reasonable. And the other thing that I found out about, uh, these cars and exactly how they work, um, and how biodiesel works, if you're interested, is, uh, well, first of all, biodiesel.org is the place you should go if you want to find out if there are any biodiesel stations nearby you. Uh, so if you were to purchase a, a diesel engine car, if you could actually put biodiesel in it. Um, but also, there's a way to modify these cars to run on straight vegetable oil which is often abbreviated as SVO online, which took a little bit of research to figure out. Um, but there, you know, there more than one company does it, but uh, you can get kits to put in these cars and you actually end up with two fuel tanks. You can't say gas tanks because one's a diesel tank and one is a vegetable oil tank. And... So you can modify, get the second tank. I mean, so first of all, you can drive some ridiculously long ways, you know, eight or 900 miles between fill-ups. But um, you can also get straight vegetable oil from, like, restaurants, from their grease pits, dump it in your 
tank that's sitting in like the trunk of your car and if you do that consistently you could just not pay for gas anymore so all of these features combined have got me very excited about the prospect of extremely cutting down on the cost of my car extremely cutting down on the insurance as a side note extremely cutting down on the amount of gas I buy because this car actually gets better gas mileage than the Prius, on, at least on the freeway. And then the possibility of hardly ever having to buy diesel because I can just get grease from restaurants. It's, I mean, it, granted, it takes a little bit more work to go into restaurants, meet the owner, ask if you can kind of finagle a deal with them to take their, uh, you know, used oil uh, off their hands but you know as, as we're approaching peak oil or if we've passed it already or when we attack Iran you might want to be prepared with a alternate fuel source so something to look into uh, I would recommend as I said biodiesel.org uh, the, the one company I know of for sure that does uh, the uh, second tank modification to diesel cars, such as uh, Volkswagens, um, is greasecar.com. And uh, and if you're interested, uh, I mean, personally, I'm a fan of Volkswagens. I, I have been for years, even before this. Um, but if you're looking into a, a Volkswagen, the key uh, that you need to know is uh, the the sub subtitle is TDI. That's, that's how you know it's a diesel engine. Uh, so mine is Volts, you know, VW Golf TDI turbo diesel. So um, if you're interested, I certainly uh, endorse this line of uh, action when it comes to purchasing your next car or dealing with an oil shortage uh, or just being a good citizen in general. So uh, if you have any questions about it, certainly feel free to uh, drop me a line at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com or just visit bestoftheleftpodcast.com for you know links to my email address or the, the forum where you can tap in and there's a whole community of people there who would love to talk to you. And, uh, and there's a whole thread about biodiesel there as well. Have a good one, everybody. It's now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor